Today's Bible reading comes from Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 to 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he was—he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you gave me, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. 
My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Good morning, everyone. I'll try that again. Good morning, everyone. I like the story about the tree climbing, Mike. I was just wondering whether it would do me some good. I'm glad you got that. That's good. Well, in your monthly book, you'll see you've just got a blank page, but I'll uh, reveal the outline as you go along if you want to take some notes. Chapter 15, which we just read, uh, contains probably some of the best known of Jesus' parables. And uh, I think such familiarity sometimes, however, uh, can often mean we really can miss the profound invitation these parables contain to join God in his quest for the lost to share his heart. So that's why the sermon today is simply called God's Heart uh, for the Lost. Yet what we find here in these parables of Jesus is not simply uh, something of what God is like but what he is in contrast, in comparison to the so-called people who belong to God uh, in his day. There's a great comparison here. Uh, One, by the end of the chapter, uh, we will be invited to assess and decide whose side we want to be on. And that comparison can be broken into three phases, I think. The first in uh, just the first two verses of chapter 15, The second, in uh, the two parables of the lost sheep and uh, the lost coin in verses 3 to 10. And then the third, in the longer parable, uh, the parable of the lost son in verses 11 uh, to 32. In the first phase, God's heart for the lost is clearly presented um, by Jesus' um, association with tax collectors and sinners, in verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, this is not the first time that we see Jesus eating with such people. It's already been said, if you go back to chapter 5, in verses 27 to 32, chapter 7, in verse 39, Or uh, Luke will again draw attention to this in chapter 19, later on in verse 7. This association was a regular part of Jesus' activity. It's part of Luke's presentation of Jesus going to the margins of society, the outsiders, the rejected, the looked down upon. Jesus sought out these people because he knew they were more likely to respond to the grace and acceptance um, that he showed them than the religious elite who saw themselves as righteous and deserving, if you like, of God's favour. Such an association is set, as you see here, directly in contrast with the self-righteous muttering of the Pharisees. Why did the Pharisees mutter at Jesus' association with such people? What was the problem for them? Well, because they saw salvation in terms of religious law-keeping. A bit like 
Mike's testimony earlier. They concentrated on the externals and neglected the heart and the motivation. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, if you went to chapter 5 and 7, 5 to 7 of Matthew, Jesus made it clear that to hate a brother or sister for God was just as much a breach of the commandment not to commit murder. Or to look on a woman lustfully was just as much a breach of the commandment not to commit adultery. An emphasis on external law-keeping allowed the Pharisees to justify themselves as righteous and deserving of God's acceptance. Hence, tax collectors and sinners simply deserved God's wrath and were not to be associated with. I think we often see that sort of attitude at times in our society too with those who see themselves as the morally upright, the good people, who think that the criminal, the dull bludgers, the down and outs of this world deserve what they get. Our condemnation, condemnation and disgust. I wonder sometimes if we might fall into the same trap, thinking we are more deserving of God's grace than those who might do great evil. Jesus never hosed down the seriousness of sin. He never hosed it down, he never overlooked it. Those who repented were always caused to cease from their former life and to act differently. But that did not stop him from associating with them, eating with them, drinking with them, so that they might hear the good news of God's grace, the only basis upon which they could belong to him. Secondly, we see God's heart for the lost here in verses 3 to 10. Um, By heaven's joy over the repentance of one sinner. Now here are two parables that roughly run along the same theme, the joy and celebration that occurs when we find something valuable that we've lost. In the first instance, a sheep from a shepherd's herd has gone astray and in the second, a silver coin is lost. In each case, the animal or the object is found. Joy and celebration with friends is the result. And Jesus leaves aside some of the questions that we might ask about uh, these two parables because he's not really um, interested in the details. As with many of Jesus' parables, the point or punchline is contained in how the parable ends. You see, the emphasis is not so much on the shepherd or the woman, but on how they illustrate what God is like. So in verse 7, we read, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now just as an aside, I don't think for a moment Jesus is implying here by his comment about the righteous um, who don't need to repent that they actually exist, especially not the Pharisees. Rather, 
that is probably what the Pharisees thought. And so Jesus goes on, goes with their thought, uh, because the point of the story is not whether they're righteous or not. The point of the story is on heaven's joy. Again, in verse 10, we read, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The whole of God's heavenly community, including the angels, rejoice and party when one sinner repents and turns back to God. You see, God's not really in the business of numbers, at least numbers for their own sake. He is in the business of people. If you're into numbers, then most of the time you lose your focus on people. All that matters tends to be bums on seats. But heaven rejoices every time the repentance of just a single individual takes place. And that joy is meant to be seen, I think, as we have here, in contrast to human joy over finding things. Now, we all know the experience, I presume, of lost and found things, don't we? Sometimes on a daily basis we're trying to find the keys, TV remote, whatever it is that gets lost around your house, search and search and search, and we rejoice. Or it can be more significant, like that wedding ring that comes off in the washing up, goes down the sink, and the rejoicing that happens when you undo the pipe at the bottom and you find that it's still there and it hasn't got washed away completely. One of our great family stories um, in this regard happened many years ago, thirty more than 30 years ago, when we lived in the US while I was doing some further study. It all centred around a soft toy elephant, uh, appropriately named... It was the constant companion of our number three daughter, Jessica, and incredibly precious. We went went everywhere with her. She used to suck her thumb and tickle her ear with a label. We still have it stored in our home, as my wife pointed out to me this week, and so we thought we'd dig it out. It's pretty bad news now, <laughs> if I can say that. Um, and also, I dug it up. This is Jessie when she was young, tickling her ear with Ellie. One Christmas, we'd been in a gift shop and come home and suddenly noticed we didn't have Ellie. Panic and dread ensued. We thought it must have been left somewhere um, in the shop and the chances of recovery by that stage were very slight indeed. Lots of people in the shop at Christmas time. But when I phoned the shop, I found out that the shopkeeper had seen it. It was a bit better than this then. And thought because of its well-worn and uh, mottled look that it was probably dear to someone. And he picked it up and he put it behind the counter. 
I really can't explain <laughs> the state of relief or joy or celebration that resulted from all the members of the family. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with this. Some things are very precious. And when they're found after being lost, our joy is appropriate. You see, the Pharisees might have had compassion for a lost sheep. I mean, note that the, the parable says that the shepherd carried the sheep on his shoulders and took him back. There was compassion there. But how often, friends, do we feel this way about people? I don't think Jesus told these parables just to say God is like us. Rather, he told them to draw a contrast between human joy over lost things and heaven's joy over lost people. We celebrate when we find lost things, but the whole company of heaven, God and his angels, celebrate over the repentance of just one person. In our materialistic world today, we do place great value on things, but what about people? How often are the people we know in our prayers asking God to change their hearts? How often do we pray to the Lord of the harvest that we might send more workers into the field to share the gospel, especially to groups who've never heard of Jesus at all? God parties over people much more then he parties over things. The challenge is to we. And that really leads us to the third aspect, the third parable we see here of God's heart for the lost. In the longest parable in this chapter, God's heart for the lost is presented as a father's celebration at the return of a sinful son. The story is well known. The son asks for a share of the inheritance uh, according to the law, he would have the youngest son. He would have been given one third. The oldest son would get two thirds. But asking now, rather than when his father died, showed a fair bit of disrespect for his father. But the father gives the son a request anyway. The son leaves. The son sins, and subsequent results are then outlined. All the father gave him is squandered in wild living. No doubt spent on wine, women and partying. He spent everything. But in so doing, he didn't anticipate a widespread famine that occurred in the land at the time. And he had nothing left and ended up in great need. So bad was his position that he ended up doing what no Jewish boy would ever do. Tending pigs. Wishing he could eat what they ate. Because the Old Testament law, you see, specified pigs as unclean animals, uh, which Jews certainly uh, were not to eat, not to be around. To feed them was shameful and dishonourable. So eventually he then comes to his senses 
That's a way of referring, really, to his repentance. And he decides to turn to his father as a hired servant, recognising that his behaviour had forfeited any rights that he be regarded as his son. When he returns, however, his father is glad to see him and he welcomes him back as a son, dresses him up, kills the fattened calf and throws a big party. It's a massive example of the grace of God, whom the father obviously represents in this story in response to the son's repentance. And the son's words show that he really is repentant. We should understand his repentance is real. He knew what he'd done and he just wanted to be a hired servant. But to stop there and take this parable on its own, as has often been done, is a great mistake in this context. That would be to miss the whole point of why Jesus told the parable. You see, this is not just a story about the Father's grace on its, on its own, but the Father's grace in contrast to an angry and resentful older brother. See, at the time of the youngest son's return, the older brother's out in the field, then he hears music and dancing, the sounds of a party, and wonders what's going on. It's a party to celebrate the return of a younger brother. Father's even killed the fattened calf as part of the celebration. He's angry and refuses to go in after the father begs him to. Why? Why is he angry? Why is he angry and resentful? Well, I think, you see, we can discern that from what he states in conversation with his father. Verses 29 to 30. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You see, the son makes three statements. All these years I have been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. This sinful son of yours comes home and is rewarded for his behaviour. You see, these statements add up to the same problem the Pharisees had, a confidence in their own self-righteousness. The son seems to think his work for his father is the basis of his favour. All these years I've been slaving for him. Notice that's not what the father says. In verse 31 he says, everything I have is yours. The flip side of this is that the sins of the younger brother deserve nothing but that he should be disowned. Add to this the son's, I think, arrogant confidence that he has never sinned or disobeyed his father. Highly unlikely. And you can see that the parable really has brought us back to precisely where the chapter began. That is why in this context, this last part of the parable concerning the reaction of the, of the oldest son is so crucial. It really is what the whole parable is about. Not simply the grace and joy of the Father, but the grace, that grace, in stark contrast to the self-righteous anger of the older brother. 
And this is highlighted further by the fact that the parable's conclusion is left open-ended. You see, Jesus doesn't tell us what the older brother did in the end. Doesn't tell us about uh, his response to the father's final words in verse 32. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now I'm sure Jesus ended the parable this way on purpose because the real point of telling these parables was to issue an implied invitation. What I've called the underlying question. The ending of the parable is purposely left open as a challenge to the Pharisees and indeed a continuing challenge to all who follow Jesus and would be his disciple. What will be your attitude? Whose side will you take? Will you join the Father or ignore the lost? Are you self-righteous or even self-satisfied Pharisee who really has no interest in the millions of people all around us who face God's judgment and ultimately eternal hell? Or will you join the Father actively seeking the lost because you have a heart to see even just one person repent and receive the mercy and grace he pours out? Now, friends, I must confess to you that too often I am like the Pharisee. I became a Christian a long time ago. By God's grace, it's the best thing I ever did. I know I belong to God. I know I'm safe and secure in his grace. But I don't tend to worry too much whether other people I know will get there. And I suspect in the business, in the busyness of life these days, I'm not the only one. How do I change that? How do I read these parables today and actually hear the challenge and invitation that Jesus gives? How do I join God's side and develop his heart for the lost? Well, let me suggest a few ways. First, with Jesus, we need to actively aim to seek association with the lost. Friends, for most of the history of Australia, let's say up until, say, the last half century, the lost have largely come to us, haven't they? I mean, in my parents' generation, uh, and mostly in mine as well, people still went to Sunday school. They had their children baptised or christened in the church and most married in the church. There were the great Billy Graham Crusades of the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, where masses of ordinary people came and were converted to Christ. The biggest services of the year were always the Christmas and Easter services because even if you didn't come to church any other time, thousands of people came at Christmas and Easter. But all that's changed today. 
Yes, many people still seem to like Christmas carols and join in with Christmas carol services and celebrations, so we can certainly be praying for our own carol celebration and people we might be able to invite. But by and large, as the years keep going by, the church will continue to have less and less natural contact with those who do not know Christ. Most don't even know who he is today. But God is a seeking God. Jesus actively sought out those who normally he would not have, he would have had nothing to do with or they would have had nothing to do with him. And so must we as individuals and as a church. As individuals, of course, seeking to build relationships with work colleagues, neighbours, school, TAFE or uni friends is obvious. But maybe we need to think of things we can be involved in locally as well, such as sports or reaching out to the needy in some way. As a church, I think we need to think about whether there are ways as a group we can contribute to the community around us, building relationships of love that may be involved um, and may provide the opportunity uh, for people to hear the gospel, repent and find reconciliation with God. Our ambassador's ministry, for instance, which uh, SEMA is heading up to immigrants and refugees, is a good thing, one example, in its very early stages and needs plenty of people to get on board. So first we need to seek out the lost if we truly have God's heart. Second, let's seek to support others who are taking the gospel to millions of people on a global level. Today, of course, we've heard one example with our link missionaries who rose with CMS. And I hope many of you are planning to come along to the two special groups on Tuesday uh, and Wednesday this week to hear more of their work and how we can be involved. The motto of CMS is a world that knows Jesus. If we want to join God and become like him, as those who have much of the world's resources, developing a heart for the lost must affect the way we spend our money in support of gospel work, not only here but on a global scale. Do you currently support CMS or an organisation like them? If not, why not? There are whole people groups out there where there is usually no, virtually no Christian witness at all. I remember when our daughter Stephanie went to Afghanistan, first went there, she said you could virtually count on your fingers the Christian presence amongst millions of Muslims. Developing a heart for the lost means at least supporting in some way, however small, organisations and people who seek to send out workers into the harvest field of God's of the gospel work. And then third, I don't think we will do either one of the first two um, unless we're committed to pray for the lost. And I know for me, the only way I can do that is to work up a list. A list of people I personally know who don't know Jesus 
and prayer points from those who are involved in gospel work, like we've heard this morning, where I cannot be. In the end, of course, it's always God's grace that will welcome people back into his kingdom. But God chooses to do that through us and use us, just as he did uh, with the tax collectors and sinners through Jesus. CMS, for example, publishes a yearly prayer diary and monthly prayer points for each of its missionaries. All you need to do is see, Helen, where are you, Helen? There you are, it's good. Helen Filmer, our mission rep. Got a whole table over there of stuff that you can make yourself familiar with and particularly prayer points and other things. A heart for the lost is reflected in prayer that asks God to have mercy on many more people and pray about ways that we can be involved in God's mission to the lost. Well, to conclude, I just want to take you back to the beginning of the chapter and the words of the very first verse. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. This follows directly on from the last words of Jesus in the previous chapter, in chapter 14, verse 35, where Jesus says, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. In that chapter, Jesus challenged those who thought they had a seat in God's kingdom with the cost of discipleship and what it truly means to follow him. But who was truly listening? Who had ears to hear? Well, in this first verse, Luke says, the tax collectors and sinners. They were gathering to hear Jesus. In the same way, friends, in these parables, Jesus invites us to join God's quest for the lost, to pray, yearn, and do all we can to see even a single person who repents welcomed into God's kingdom. Are we listening? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the good news of your great mercy and grace. Because of the Lord Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, rose from the dead, the way is open for all who repent to come to you. We thank you for your great heart to see others come to know you. But Lord, we would just pray that you would give us that heart, a new heart, a heart that longs to see others come to you and we pray for each one of us that you might help us to know how best we can be involved in that. We ask it in Jesus' name.